Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. John Bowman is an artist working out of New York City and Pennsylvania. He's represented by the Winston Wachter Gallery in New York City. Beginning in the 1980s, he exhibited in various venues in New York City, including the Holly Solomon Gallery, the Lang O'Hara Gallery, and the Tibor Denage Gallery. He's shown internationally and is represented in many private and museum collections. He taught at the New York Academy of Art and has lectured widely. He's now a professor of art at the Pennsylvania State University. He's also a founder of First Street Green, a collaborative community group in the East Village of New York City. This group has transformed the vacant lot into an urban cultural space and a forum for the arts, film, dance, sustainable practices, and community action. John recently participated in Service to Public Areas, a collaborative public art project in Albania. In this project, Albanian and American artists created sculpture for a public park using decommissioned weapons as raw material. I met up with John at his solo show, Dominion, at Winston Wachter Gallery in Chelsea, and we spoke about his early days growing up as the son of a football coach, his many travels, inspiration, watching live music, changes in New York, and much more. Here's our conversation. All right, so let's turn back the clock. Let's get right to it. You grew up in Pennsylvania just like I did. Yes, I Except did. you grew up in the backwoods, didn't you? Uh, no, I was born in the mountains of Pennsylvania um, in a place called uh, Athens, which is uh, at the confluence of the Susquehanna and the Shemung, which is uh, just below the New York state border. But when I was very young, we moved to um, Chester County, which is outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So it was about 30 miles west of Philadelphia. Oh, so you weren't out there, out there. Not out there, out there. It was sort of um, the end of the main line where you stopped seeing nice big houses and started seeing um, an industrial town, which is what Coatesville was. More cramped houses. Well, um a variety of architectures, a lot of uh, twin houses. Yeah. The duplex. Like the they du- used to call them duplexes. even Duplex or like some of the um, older buildings in Philadelphia, Trinities, you know, three-story three yeah. brick. Typical. So, and what did you do growing up? Were you uh, drawing, playing sports? Well, my dad was a football coach, so we had to play all sports. Mandated. Mandated, but um, my brother was into poetry and history and all that stuff, and we were readers, and so a lot of reading and a lot of drawing. um, Did that come from the mom's side? um, I don't really think so. Um, I don't think that we had a whole lot of artists on either side of... Um, my parents' families. Um, I think it was just out of boredom. It was a little town, yeah. not much to do. So it was a, a bit of a fantasy escape for right. me to just draw another world. Yeah, you didn't have Netflix to take you there. No. <laughs> no, we didn't. Well, you know, they say that good coaches are creative people, or a creative mind makes a, co- a good coach a really good coach. 
Well, um, he was good, wasn't he? He was a good coach. Uh, he won a number of championships and so forth. He was really good at trying to um, help his players go on to college and have careers after that. Um, but mostly he was just a person who encouraged us to do something with our time yeah. that uh, we weren't supposed to just lay about. We were supposed to be at it, doing something that we were involved in. And was he always busy and you guys were just... Sure, pretty you know, much. Taking yeah. care of yourself creatively and doing your own thing? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't th- that neglectful, I suppose, as much as any professional person who is quite busy in their life uh, can be. Um, uh, but yeah, we had a lot of time to ourselves to focus on our interests. Yeah, I feel like when I was growing up, it was just, you know, back then it, the parents were busy and it was okay where I feel like nowadays you're supposed to be so attentive or there's this expectation that you're constantly being attentive to your kids or you're shoving an iPad into their face and like letting them, you know, be busy for a half an hour, but then there's a cap on that or something. Yeah. I suppose the technology has just raised it to a different level. Yeah. I mean, people just had more time to converse, more time to be together doing nothing in particular. Whereas now, you know, people are using their phones at the dinner table I've seen and yeah. things like that. So the technology has really sort of taken over everything. Yeah. Um, wh- how was high school? Were you taking art classes or were you still sure. doing sports? Or I was taking art classes. We had, uh, we had a very lucky situation. In middle school, we had a, a teacher, a fellow named Ozzy Romito, who went to... Um, he went to the Philadelphia Academy. Mm-hmm. So how he ended up out in uh, Coatesville, I don't know. He was he was a coach. He was a wrestling coach. But um, he would have us come in in the evenings. He called it the soiree. And it was he picked a bunch of us, about six artists that he would have come in after school. And there we would do um, copies of old master paintings. Um he would play jazz and classical music and talk to us about the composers and the players and their importance. And he would read poetry to us, just a variety of things to enrich us. And it was really a great thing. Yeah. Kind of exposed you to all this stuff that, you know, open a new door, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. And of course, that's when we started to go into Philadelphia a lot to see uh, the Philadelphia Museum yeah. and galleries and the Rodin Museum, places like that. So it was a great resource. And you could link together that kind of like draw the soiree with, you know, this other side of artwork that was in museums and in the city. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was a real eye opener and it was a very special opportunity for us in that particular town. Mm-hmm. And what was the uh, music situation growing up? Was it kind of like what he was exposing to you or were you listening to a lot of stuff in the house? Well, um, let me see. It was sort of the beginnings of FM radio. Mm-hmm. So we were listening a lot to the Soul Station in yeah. Philadelphia. Um, but then, of course, the uh, uh, sort of folk rock started to come in and uh, folk music. And my brother was a big Bob Dylan fan. Yeah. So we were always listening to Bob Dylan and transcribing the lyrics and discussing the, uh, the meanings uh, within and um, but I remember one time we had to have a conference where we sat down and decided well 
are we going to go with like soul music and dancing <laughs> or are we going to split off and go with like folk rock and this new kind of like psychedelic stuff that's coming out because right. I mean can we do both and we decided that we could do both oh yeah you took both roads uh, yeah yeah we decided that we just couldn't decide yeah because it used to be I, I don't even know if that exists anymore but I remember there used to be a split like for me, it was: Are you gonna listen to punk and like skateboarding music, or are you gonna listen to like Public Enemy and exactly. or like rap music? And right. it, the thought of in high school of embracing both sides of that seemed, uh, you know, undoable. It was just gonna be too weird or something. Yeah, just something that there was a difference in the uh, uh, difference in the psychology of them, which it, uh, there wasn't. But uh, right. we decided that we were going to follow both paths, and then, of course, when. Bob Marley came along and kind of joined the kind of dancing music with sort of interesting political lyrics. Yeah. Then that was kind of a perfect synthesis for us. Yeah, it's funny because when I was growing up, I remember hearing reggae and like dub music. And for some reason, it was like it wasn't cool to like that stuff. I don't know why, but, you know, people would just if I walked around listening to reggae, it'd be like, you're the stoner guy. Who's got like the, you know, the Bob Marley patch on his jean jacket or something. Not cool. Uh-huh. But that music is so political in a way and so sociological. It, it, it's really heavy music. But also the flip side of it is this sort of, you know, nihilist like smoke weed and, and chill. It's, well, it's such an and, interesting blend. And the sort of dancing groove. Yeah. Too, getting lost in the rhythm. Yeah. It's good stuff. It really did, did tie together those two worlds. It it did for us. So you yeah. embraced it? Yeah, pretty much. Did you ever get to see any live Bob Marley or any uh, reggae? Oh, sure. Yeah? Sure, yeah. I'm an old guy. We got to see a lot of that stuff. <laughs> well, Philly is a great music town. Yeah. And you yeah. would you were going into the city, right? We were going to the electric factory in Philadelphia. There were t- I remember seeing the doors at a at a boxing arena. They they Whoa. were standing inside of the, you know, the boxing in the ring in the ring with yeah, the ropes yeah. up and every everything and they were inside of their playing and uh i think that was his last tour before he got busted in florida or something i was gonna say did jim hold it together for that one jim held it together for that one yeah yeah, yeah he did um yeah we saw a bunch of the bands in philadelphia i mean hendrix and cream and you know you yeah. name it it's got such a good kind of jazz slash like soul roots to that town you know certainly yeah so um so high school are you thinking i'm going to go to school for art this is this something i want to do like how did the the life path of being creative get forged well i was uh painting and drawing all through high school and making sculpture and doing all that stuff but I still felt that i could do anything of course one feels that all the doors are open at that point uh, plus, this was around the time of Watergate. So, mm-hmm. of course, we all wanted to be um, crusading journalists. Yeah. So I was thinking of going to school for communications. Uh, I'd always liked history. So I was always reading history and political science, nonfiction stuff. And um, But then somehow when I got to college, when I got to Rutgers University, um, it was close to New York and I had a lot of friends at Columbia University so I used to come in on the bus and see them and I spent a lot of time going to art galleries and museums and just decided 
just somewhere along the line that that was the way I was going to go. And what what year did you start at Rutgers? I started at Rutgers in 1971. So there was a, it was kind of a, well, in the city, when you're going to the city, it's a little rough around the edges at that point, right? Um, I didn't think so. I had nothing to compare it to. Yeah. I just thought it was like uh, Oz or something. Right. I, I was just mesmerized by it. Yeah. Um, I used to go up to Columbia to wait for my friends to get out of class. And while I was waiting, I would hang out in the back chapels of St. John the Divine mm-hmm. and listen to them practice their organ or their singing or whatever music that was happening. Uh, and sketch architectural details or stained glass windows or things like that or read. So it was kind of like my my hangout up there. So it was, again, another transformative thing for me. I always felt that New York was kind of like home. Um, A bunch of small towns jammed together and each neighborhood having a different sort of feeling to it. Um, It's not boring. It's not boring. Um, you know, I learned how to ride the train. Um, I guess I wasn't smart enough to be frightened. <laughs> Nobody ever bothered me um, that I can recall at that point. Um, so I, I didn't feel any fear or anything. I was just hungry to just see more of the city. Yeah. And how was Rutgers at that time? Well, Rutgers was uh, an all male school, Mm -hmm. Rutgers College, and across town was Douglas College, the female part of the school. And then during my last year, they joined and became Rutgers University. So um, it was interesting. We were doing a lot of demonstrations against the war, um, marching back and forth across town, um, you know, taking over the administration building, this kind of stuff, like most of the other schools were. Um, it was an exciting time. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Bruce Springsteen, uh, Springsteen's band was uh, called Steel Mill, and they used to play the sock hops at uh-huh. one of our school. Oh, I think man. the place was called The Ledge that was on the side of the Raritan River. And they would play these things where the first set would be their covers of like the Rolling Stones and stuff. And yeah. then the last set, they'd play their own stuff. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that's seeing them in the early days, early, early days. Yeah. Jersey. Jersey. <laughs> so, and was the art program, did you, uh, like, did you have a studio? Were you, um, what was it like, the art school there? It was, at that time, it was just before they built the Mason Gross School of the Arts. Yeah. Um, I was there for the last couple years at Mason Gross, but the first couple years when it was uh, Rutgers College, it was in a very small kind of almost like a garage kind of building. Um, It was run by a fellow named uh, Bill Pritchard, who was Mm -hmm. a a great um, painter, um, sort of hard edge abstractionist, um, but he was very open to all the different things that we were working on. And um, it was just a a good program, though a small one. And then they got that, when they joined together, uh, Rutgers and Douglas, they built the Mason Gross School of the Arts, and that was for the time, and and even still a very cutting-edge kind of school. Did you get that for one year, or were you out by the time that was? Um, I think I was there for the la- two years at yeah. the end. Yeah, That's cool. Yeah. And then what, what was your thought after you graduate? What do I do now? Well, if for me, it wasn't really anything to think about. I, I had been planning all along to, to move to New York. and Felt like home? 
Yeah, and get a loft. And so I got a loft in Tribeca, which yeah. at the time had tumbleweeds blowing down the street. <laughs> right. I could park my truck on the street for a year and not have to move it. And no, just like today. It's nice <laughs> to know some, some things never change. Uh, yeah, it was it was really cool neighborhood because a bunch of artists and musicians were living there. And um, I guess people look on it as a rough time because, you know, there was graffiti and broken glass everywhere and a lot of bo- boarded up buildings and so forth. But for us, it was, it was a wonderland. Yeah. You know, we had rent parties and... Uh, sort of art shows that we just sort of get together and have in each other's lofts and stuff like that. So it was a pretty cool scene. Yeah, and you could afford, you know, it sounds like it was more doable as a young artist. I'm embarrassed to tell young people today how little rent we paid for those huge spaces, and so I'm not going to repeat it here because... (laughs) uh, Yeah, but it was ridiculously easy for us to have room enough to work and live um utilities and stuff were cheap um again you could park on the street and not get towed and uh it was it was very free and easy um i don't know how people do it today right it's not the same no yeah i can imagine as once in a blue moon i'll meet someone who owns or who owned a loft in soho or tribeca because they bought in the 70s or early 80s yeah and i'm always amazed at you know, that price tag compared to sure what they could have it for today. Yeah. So, um, so you moved in and you just started working. Were you meeting people? How did you kind of connect to getting your work out there? Well, in those days, um, uh, the art market was much smaller than it is now. And it was mostly, um, you know, the, there were the uptown galleries and then a few in Soho, um, so we would sort of go up to Soho on the nights that there were openings and just hit all the openings that we could. It was a good place to get free wine and hors d'oeuvres. You used yeah. to have a lot of hors d'oeuvres yeah, at those yeah. openings. You could you could eat pretty well off of the, the gallery openings. Um, and uh, we were all sort of working in the construction trades. They didn't have computers then, so or at least not in my set. So... Uh, most of the artists that I knew were working in some area of the construction or framing or something like that. Yeah. So, so we were all working in construction, but everybody was an artist. Um, it was rare that you'd find somebody who wasn't making artwork of some kind, and usually they were a musician or something. Yeah. And so that's uh, what it was like. So uh, after work, we would go and have a few beers and sit around and inevitably be talking about art and the kind of work we were doing. So the conversation was always um, about art issues. Yeah. Um, we were joining together in sort of reading groups, um, picking out certain books about that time. Certain theoretical works were coming, uh, being translated from French into English, and so we were reading those and discussing those. It was kind of like an informal grad school yeah for me like a community grad school learning on the job training in a way kind of do you think it was mostly artists down there just because no one else really wanted to live around there if they didn't have to you know what i mean it was kind of like a good spot for artists to live because it was still industrial you had space and no one else really wanted right to live right there. well it was kind of gnarly and yeah. i remember um a few times when I would have relatives come up to visit, and my father was aghast, and he said, how, how can you live in a place like this? This right. is, you know, a pit. It's a ghetto. You know, it's horrible. And 
you shouldn't be living in this terrible place with you know wrecked cars on the street and all this kind of stuff and i hadn't really noticed i just noticed the space yeah um yeah they were kind of horrified but uh, i yeah i think people just didn't know how to use the space uh they they weren't fixed up they were pretty raw yeah um uh, and it was, like I say, mostly artists or people that had things like a cabinet building shop, you know, something where they re- really needed some room for fabrication and, you know, to park vehicles and so forth. And it wasn't until, I suppose, the the 90s when people started to move in and people started to get kicked out and um, they started to really fix up these buildings yeah. to uh, really fine finishes and then a different group of people started to move in. And then your family would come up and be like, why don't you still live here? <laughs> yeah, like that, yeah. <laughs> Flip the switch. Yeah. Um, so you were, when did you first start showing your work? And the early work, I mean, I kind of, I, I guess I became familiar with your work when you were doing these kind of large, um, really condensed, sti- not still lives, but you know, like objects and like paintings that were really dense. I mean, mm-hmm. what were you doing when you first moved to... Tribeca what was your work like well I was trying to um, speak with images again I had been an abstract painter in in college um, influenced by my professors there and so forth Um, color field painting and Mm -hmm. that kind of an idea Um, but I was so interested in the stuff that I was reading both theory but also political science and history and I wanted to bring some of the historical and social stuff into the work and so I started to work in figuration again, and um, and there were a group of artists uh, that were working and using that language also and trying to find new ways to speak with it. Um, and so we just uh, started an informal conversation about it. It's not like it was really a movement or anything because our work was uh, really different from each other, but um, we, we shared a common interest in representing things so that um, perhaps people that weren't trained in art could still understand what you were trying to say. Yeah. So some sort of plausibility of, of meaning or structure in them. And uh, at first I was looking at people like the Hudson River School and uh, Caspar David Friedrich and some of the more romantic landscape stuff that then into those I would insert these other kinds of messages. Um, and um, slowly over time, that sort of changed. It became much more about architecture, about how uh, architecture is kind of uh, power's signature on the landscape in a way. It mm-hmm. kind of describes what's possible for us socially and politically and how we sort of organize space and use it in that way. Um, so that work started to come in too. Um, and then I started to work more with the erasure drawings um, that you see here. Yeah. Um, I think the very first erasure drawings I did, I had made a, a visit to Vienna. I was in a, a show, um, in Salzburg and, uh, we had, part of the trip was a trip to Vienna by bus and we went into Vienna and spent a few days there. And it was my first time in that kind of central Europe, uh, environment where I, I'd read a lot about it, so I knew about it historically, but to be in the presence of all of those buildings on the Ringstrasse and 
just the way that the light sort of illuminated the structures and so forth. I was really struck by that. So when I when I came back to the States, I kind of wanted to bring it with me, and I couldn't. So I took these big rolls of paper, rubbed powdered graphite onto them, and then erased away the silhouettes so that I could have almost this Potemkin village mm-hmm. of these architectural forms around me in my studio. It was kind of like a way to to recreate it in, in my space. Almost so like a that, memory in a way. Yeah. So it's not super detailed. Like you're, It's not the crisp memory. It's not kind of like a placeholder for that memory in sure. a way. Yeah. So, and that's lar- you were working large scale. Yeah. Have you tradition? I mean, some of the work in this current show is, you know, smaller, medium scale, and then larger scale. I mean, what is, have you always worked across different sizes? Yeah, different, uh, different scales for different things. Uh, I've done site specific erasure pieces. I think I did one at Smack Mellon a few years back where mm-hmm. I did a, uh, an entire sort of building the opera house from Vienna on a wall that was certainly not life size, but it was big. It was big. It yeah. was like forty feet long and twenty feet high. And um, so I've worked in very large scale, but I've I like to work in a small scale too. I think that you should be able to make something immense in a small space. Yeah, it's harder almost, right? Harder, but it's to command people's um, sort of attention and to captivate them in a small image, I think is sometimes harder than large scale. Harder, certainly to have that kind of an impact, but I I think it's possible. Yeah. And you get the intimacy that sometimes you don't get in a bigger work. So are you still kind of, uh, you know, friends or have like, you know, that, that early community that you developed in, you know, lower Manhattan, do you still connect with those people or well, we we do. I mean, not with the frequency we used to because we are all um, sort of embedded in our lives at this point yeah. and some have moved out of town. But uh, we get together. Um, certainly when one of us or another of us have a show, we come together to meet for that or um, other special occasions that we can, certainly. Mm-hmm. But we're still in communication and share ideas and yeah. so forth. And um, what, during that early, those early days in the city, were you checking out music, CBGBs? Were you going out and oh sure, stuff? yes, all of it's that. It's a fertile stuff. time for it New was. York City rock and roll. Well, the I lived right near the Mud Club, so we had the Mud Club to go mm-hmm. to, and there was also a place down there called Tier Three. I don't even know if you've heard of that. I've never heard of it. Well, it later became a place called El Teddy's, mm-hmm. which we called the Tedious. <laughs> and, but uh, before that, it was a place called Tier 3 where a lot of early bands played. Um, yeah, there was Tier 3. There used to be this place called the Galway Bay Bar where Bobby Radcliffe's Blues Review used to play. And uh-huh. it, he had like a horn section and everything. So Was that in Soho? No, that was Tribeca. Tribeca, yeah. yeah. When did the Knitting Factory move? Th- well, they're not there now, but when did they go on to Leonard Street, do you know? Was it back in the 80s? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. We used to go there all the time. Yeah. And now they're in Williamsburg. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. After a short sojourn on Houston Street, right? Didn't they jump up there for a short period? That sounds right. But yeah. I, n- I never went to... I cause Went there once when they were up on Houston. Houston. It was just so much easier to go to when it was down on Leonard Street. Yeah. It's, it's funny how the music venues really thinned out, too, in the city. Or at yeah. least to my... No- I'm sure there's new kind of 
underground clubs and stuff, but like with Tonic and all those places when they shuttered up, you know, I feel like there's less of an experimental right kind of um, group of venues, but maybe they're just out in Bushwick and other places Yeah, now. yeah, because in, Tribeca had a, a number of other clubs too. I mean, Area was down there during yeah. that time and th- that was just a constant, you know, party <laughs> going on every night almost. So there were a, a lot of things to do with mm-hmm. with listening to music and performance and also we used to go they used to have um a kind of performance loft that was i think it was on leonard street gosh this is going way back and you used to go in and take you know a bottle of wine and some lunch and a blanket and lay down on on the floor of this beautiful loft and um philip glass and um um dickie landry and you know, his whole gang of musicians yeah. would come in and they'd just play for hours. And, you know, you just kind of lay there on the floor and go to sleep and wake up and they'd still be playing. It That's was amazing. Joan LaBarbera, all those people. So that that was pretty amazing. Yeah, you got to see that in real time. In real time, <laughs> yes. So did you always stay in Manhattan? Or did you ever have to move out to Brooklyn or Queens or get a studio somewhere else? Or were you always well, based in Manhattan? I, I always toyed with the idea. I, I um, you know, because we could feel the pressures coming against Tribeca that we were going to yeah. have to get out of there one way or another. I, I worked for a construction company and we always felt that with every nail that we drove into the wall, we were driving ourselves out of the place. Um, we knew it was coming. I would go over. I God, I wish I had moved to Williamsburg the first time I went over there and looked at a place. But we were always um, sort of suspended by the the sort of carrot of the possibility of buying the building that I lived in. Oh yeah. So we kept trying to do that with with subsequent owners who would come in, and they would always again offer us the opportunity. We'd try to marshal the resources to do that and then at the last minute they'd snatch it away and say no we're not gonna do this and so at a certain point um we lost our loft and so i moved to the east village Mm -hmm. where i remain to this day um but uh, i have nothing against brooklyn uh i know we used to joke about needing a passport to go to brooklyn (laughs) for the weekend but i mean now i go to brooklyn often yeah i'm going there tonight yeah so so yes, I have to make the uh, journey to Bushwick this evening. Yeah, but so. that's that's interesting because I feel like not too too many people were able to sustain and just live in Manhattan for all that time. But I guess you got into your apartment a long time ago, so why sure. leave? I mean, sure. you get a good rent. Yeah, you know. Well, I had a criminally low rent in yeah. Tribeca, so I could stay there for years. And even though uh, we had a succession of pretty lousy landlords. Um, because of things that we did through the loft law, we kept our rent really low. Yeah. And so finally when we had to leave, I'd saved up enough money to buy a small apartment. So Right. And then you also live in Pennsylvania as well, right? You have a place in Pennsylvania. I do, yes. So you get the city and the country. Just a nice combination. It is. And um, so bringing it forward, I mean, you've basically been showing throughout all that time. Yes. And... Um, and leading up to this show that we're here now for, like, can you talk a little bit about the work in this show? Like you were saying before, it's erasure drawings and yeah. And, um, like, how did you, you know, work on the show? How did you start these images and, and maybe just talk a little bit about them? Right. Well, um, I've been 
drawing these kind of chandelier drawings for some years. And I, I do a few each year just because uh, it's kind of interesting to me. I, the first time I ever tried that technique with the Vienna erasures that I did, um, it just seemed to me like a kind of a magic, like drawing in reverse, that you were drawing with light in a way. Yeah. Almost like drawing with a flashlight, but it being able to be stabilized. Right. And um, so I, I was working on it, these erasure drawings. I At first it was kind of silly, you know, it's a like art, it's a thing that hangs there and is illuminating yeah. somehow. Um, but I just like the different kinds of uh, effects you could get with the eraser machine making these refracted sort of crystals and so forth. And then um, after a period of, of painting uh, these uh, large landscapes that use sort of disintegrating uh, architecture, I decided that I would merge that with the uh, chandeliers. There was just something that started to to look like almost like they were space stations or mm -hmm. um, some kind of uh, suspended cities. I don't know. Um, so I started to work the architecture into it, and uh, I felt it was pretty fruitful. And some of them uh, also, though, they, they became more like bodies with uh, bone structures. So because of the, there's a fancy word, an antiomorphic nature mm -hmm. of uh, the chandelier in that it's like handed like a book. There's a right-hand side and a left-hand side yeah. that sort of reflects the other side somehow. You can play with that kind of bilateral symmetry and insert certain things that create an expectation that it will be repeated on the other side, but then you can either meet that expectation or deny it somehow mm -hmm. and problematize it in a certain way. So... Yeah. That's what they became for me, were these kind of cities that are based on memory. Some of them are things like um, cities in Central Europe that I spent time in. I spent a lot of time in Prague and places like that. So some of that deals with the Bohemian um, Czech Republic. Um, others, though, are more relating to recent trips I've made to places like uh, Turkey, Istanbul, um, Athens, places like that. I'm really fascinated by this sort of layering of history and time and those things. And whoops. And being a person who's, uh, uh, I've always liked to read history and have had a certain desire, as all people who read history do, to want to sort of travel in time, to walk in these places and see buildings that are hybrids of different time and historical periods is about as close to time travel as I'm going to get, yeah. I reckon. So, and you you do a lot of travel, and uh, I'm obviously that informs your work a lot. Well, it's um, let me see. I mean, I think part of it is because of the the schedule that I have to stick to with um, with teaching yeah. and and living part of the time in Pennsylvania and going back and forth. I'm always on the move somehow, um, but then of course you get this period off in the summertime Why and, not? <laughs> and you just, yeah, I'm, I spend most of my time either at the university or in Manhattan. And so when you get a little bit of time off, we, we try to find a place to go visit friends or a residency or something like that. That's and what I was going to ask. Cause you've been to, I mean, you know, 
I'm sure you've been to a lot of different places in Europe, but you've gone to some places that aren't necessarily like touristy, you know what I mean? Or the first place you go, are you drawn to places as there, is it more art related, like opportunities you get, or is it places you just are curious about or how do you, how are you deciding where you go? Well, it's a combination of the two. I mean, I went to a residency in Crete last year and I've always wanted to go to Crete. Can't believe I waited this long to go there. So it was a great opportunity, and so I jumped at it. Um, but other things just sort of happened. I mean, I had a, a long connection with people in the Czech Republic. I was friends with people in the Plastic People of the Universe band, which mm-hmm. was one of the dissident groups that were they were friends with Václav Havel. And so I, I knew a, a bunch of those folks. And while I was there, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Marketa Fialkova, and she was the uh, sort of the ran the office for Václav Havel when he was first president of the Czech Republic, and then uh, she was offered an ambassadorship to Albania. So we were at their house one summer um, at a picnic, and she was saying, "Well, no one will come and see me in Albania," and. <laughs> I'd always wanted to go to Albania. I can't really explain why. I mean, part of it, I think, was that it was one of Rome's first colonies, so there's a lot of antiquity there that's just waiting to be discovered. Yeah. So, Plus, it was a formerly communist country that had just sort of um, uh, become recently uh, independent of the Soviet sort of regime that was there. So... Uh, it just seemed like an interesting time to go. Plus, I had this opportunity through um, Marquetta. So uh, we did a, a residency at, at the, um, the residence of the uh, Czech Republic there. And it was a wonderful place. She gave us an entire floor to work on, um, balconies, swimming pool, the whole deal. And while there, we met Albanian artists and um, just found out about the whole scene, very interesting part of the world that's, uh, uh, it's, it's got a lot of opportunity for people right now. It's probably a pretty poor country, but, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, just, it's on the Adriatic. It's, um, many beautiful cities. Um, it's right near Corfu, um, just below Montenegro. I just think it's a, a wonderful place. And so we went back there a few times and we did a project there mm-hmm. with them. And did you, I remember your, your last show here, you know, the architecture in some of those places and in the paintings, I know they weren't, I don't, well, at least I don't think any of them were based in, in South America, but there was a little bit of a South America vibe to some of the stacking of the buildings. And, and uh-huh. have you traveled to South America? I have not. Um, have you wanted to? I've I've been well. I've been to Mexico, but that's not South America. I've right. I've wanted to. It's just uh, the opportunity hasn't arisen. Yeah. Um, I certainly would. I I think you're referring to stuff that looks like favelas or yeah. something yeah. like that. Well, there's something I do like about uh, hill towns and things stacked on top of each other. That and colors. The colors are the colors. Um, they pop. The colors pop, but you get a lot of that in the Mediterranean yeah. as well. Yep. So, um, and especially uh, in Tirana in in Albania, um, the one uh, uh, the, he used to run the um, 
used to teach at the art school, Eddie Rama. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I think, he's not the president now, but he, he was. And um, he uh, when, when he was mayor of Tirana, he had a competition um, for designs for painting all of the Stalinist-era uh, gray concrete buildings mm-hmm. that were there. And he got a grant, I don't know who from, uh, for all this multicolored paint. And so now downtown Tirana is just a riot of, of different kind of colors and designs on buildings. That's pretty cool. And so they transformed. They totally transformed the city with paint. Yeah, inject some color into it. Yeah. So um, where are some places that you'd really love to go in the future? Do you have any like places you really are curious to see? Well, um, I think I'll probably go back to Greece again because mm-hmm. we didn't really get to dig deep enough into that the last time. I've heard such great things about it. Oh yeah, it's it's amazing place. Yeah. Um, also because of the antiquity, but also uh, I, I'm very interested in vernacular architecture that uses pieces, parts of of things old and new, and yeah. there's a lot of that going on in Greece. Um, but, but everywhere, Turkey as well. I'd like mm-hmm. to spend more time checking out Turkey, especially Anatolia, the, the Asian side. Yeah. Um, also, uh, we've been to Cairo once for a couple of weeks. I'd sure like to go back to Cairo again and across North Africa. That would really be great to see some of that pl- those places. And um, I don't know, so many places in the world I haven't been. Haven't been to Asia yet. Like, you've been to Asia, man. Yeah. I have not been to Asia at all. That's amazing. I just, you know, given world enough in time, I'll go everywhere I can go. Oh, that's, I feel the same way. Like there's so many places I want to go to and because of my family, we do go to Asia a lot. So that's a long trip and that demands a certain amount of time. So I don't have that opportunity to, you know, just, you know, try a different place, you know, to go somewhere in Eastern Europe or in Africa would be amazing to visit. There's so yeah. many places that would be really great. And I think we both probably share a bit of uh, our work being influenced by travel, you know, and just seeing oh, the certainly. world and the spaces because the spaces are so different. There's similarities, but every, every country, every town has such a different feel to it that I think is really good for thinking about space in the work and, yeah. and how it affects us. Yeah, space and function. I mean, just, just when you see how, you know, the doorknobs are different. Yeah. I mean, just little details like that can can encapsulate in an entire world and an entire world view. So, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, I also love the way that it slows down time. You know, yeah. when we're in our daily life uh things go along according to your schedule and time just zips by and when you travel someplace that's new to you um time slows down and uh it expands in a certain way and uh you kind of rip through the screen of your sort of so-called reality and you're kind of face to face with the real and you can't sustain it all the time. Right. But, but for a while it's, it's fascinating to be able to do that and to really sort of hold time for a bit longer and study it a bit more. Yeah. Um, before then, of course, inevitably you return to your routine and time zips along again. Right. It's so true. Like when you go to Paris, you know, you can wake up cause you're usually there for, you know, you're not in your day-to-day routine. You could wake up and have a great coffee. You could go to like five museums. You could walk along the river. Yeah. And you don't feel like 
you know, I'm just like a slouch who's not at my job right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you feel like this is what you're supposed to do. And yeah. you know, we don't really have that license in our day-to-day lives to do that, especially these days with like the minutia of all the stuff that we have, the tasks that we have to do every day. I mean, I think artists try to do that. Yeah. I think they try to do it in their daily lives and uh, to, to look around and see things with, with a fresh perspective. But certainly with the schedule's demands, it's, yeah. it's hard to do it a lot. And that's the great thing about travel is it's almost like um, uh, you're forced. You've set aside this time to go and do exactly that. Yeah, it's like a free zone. Yeah. So um, what are you, uh, when you're working on this work, is a very specific aesthetic, you know, these, these erasure ones. And there's, like we were talking about, there's sort of like a heaviness to the feel of them. And they, I don't know, they they have a very specific feeling. Are you specific about what you're listening to in the studio when you're working on this stuff or is it silent or is it NPR or is it, you know, what do you, or is it everything? Well, it's, I'm, I, I wish it was just one thing. It's, it's everything. Um, I'm listening to, you know, people shredding guitars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm listening to, um, uh, jazz, lots of jazz. I'm listening to classical music. Um, just discovered this uh, Catalan piano player, mm-hmm. uh, fascinating guy, Frederico Mompou, M-O-M-P-O-U. Just uh, the music of silence is one of his pieces, and they're ju- it's very slow, um, very sort of um, tonal uh, piano music, um, almost venereal sometimes, but I, I just really like it. It's really good uh, studio work. Yeah, pretty good, yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess, well, since you keep it open, I, I know you're a big movie buff. Like you like cinema. I do, do. you ever have, you know, movies playing while you're working or is that a separate? I Some do. people like to listen to them. They don't have to watch every minute and kind of like that sure. environment. I, I do. Um, you know, um, sometimes I have, you know. Herzog going in German in the back, you know, <laughs> listening to Gary the Wrath of God or something. Yeah. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, sometimes it could just be something off of YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I also listen to being a pedagogue. I listen to lectures sometimes. Yeah. And there are a lot of great lectures. Uh, I love listening to Hal Foster. I listen to Hal Foster's lectures on good architecture. Old Hal. <laughs> good old Hal. He's at, he's at it. Um, a lot of good lectures on on YouTube. So YouTube is a great resource. Uh, also, Open Culture is a great website yeah. for arts and that kind of stuff. It's all there at the fingertips these days. It's just amazing. It's almost like the kids don't even have to go to library. I know. What's a library anyway? <laughs> they do ask that. Not books. What we got to carry for this stacking around. up and putting microphones. microphones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you broke the third wall. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, no. sorry. The image has been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. These books make for great mic stands. They do. <laughs> well, uh, so the show's up for a little while. Yes. Do you want to talk about the gallery and uh, yes. location and where people can find your work yes. in general? It's uh, the Winston Walker Gallery. Uh, Winston Walker Fine Art. Uh, it's on uh, 25th Street between 10th and 11th on the ground floor. And um, it's up until my show is up until May the 12th. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, so you got some time here. I got some time here. Nice. Yeah. People yeah. can come see it. And then yeah. online, are you? I, I don't think you're a huge social media guy, but I have, you have a website. I have a website. Yes, okay. it's uh, johnbowmanart.com. Uh, also, uh, I have put some things on Instagram. Oh, yeah. I put a couple yeah. of pieces on. I just don't know the sequencing. Right. I've been asking my students, how do I do this so that it becomes a snowball or a, vi- a virus or something? <laughs> I think you call it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, I I'm still have yet to get that lesson. But right. um, I try to put things out on uh, Facebook and Instagram and things, but I'm certainly not as good at it as um, the younger folks. Well, are. you went to the right place because... Asking a student how to get a virus is a great... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. They're vectors of contagion, aren't they? Certainly. I haven't been teaching this semester, and I've been gloriously unsick for most of the winter. Amazing, isn't it? It's it's a real... Yeah, anyways. Um, So, yeah, people can check it out and check out your show, and it looks really good. Thank you very much, sir. It's been cool to talk to you today. Okay. (laughs) Thanks. See Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can follow Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast, and you can find the podcast, more information, and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening. <laughs>